He is Shaka the Unshakable. Thunderer while sitting. Son of Menzi. He is the bird that preys on other birds. The battle axe that excels over other battle axes in sharpness. He is the long strided pursuer. Son of Ndaba. Who pursued the sun and the moon. He is the great hubbub, like the rocks of Nkanla, where elephants take shelter when heavens frown. Zulu prays some for Shaka, 19th century. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies, and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 32, Dawn of the Zulu On January 22, 1879, the British Army, wearing the traditional red coats and white pith helmets they usually wore at the time to conquer people in far-off lands, engaged with a force of 22,000 native African warriors near a mountain in South Africa called Isandlwana. The British were far superior in technology and firepower, they had rifles and cannons, and even a rocket launcher, where most of the Zulu warriors were armed with long spears called Asagai, and shorter spears called Ichwa. Given this disparity, the outcome of this battle should have been obvious. But something happened that day that surprised the British. After hours of desperate fighting, the British found themselves outnumbered and surrounded by wave after wave of ferocious Zulu warriors who simply wouldn't quit. While the battle was going on, the sun inexplicably went out, plunging the battlefield into temporary darkness. By a fluke of astronomical and historical fate, the Battle of Isandlwana happened to occur on the date of a total solar eclipse, which passed over southern Africa. The Zulu took it as a sign that they would prevail, and they fought even more ferociously. When it was over, the Brits had suffered one of the most serious defeats in their military history, and one of the largest defeats inflicted on the British on land in the century between the Battle of Waterloo, which happened in the middle of the second decade, and the First World War. The British were surprised, but perhaps they shouldn't have been. They expected their enemy to be a band of primitives who would easily be swept aside by superior European technology and tactics. In reality, the Zulu were a people with a very strong military tradition, a cohesive political structure, and a desire for imperial power every bit the equal of the British. What happened at Isandlwana in January 1879 was nothing less than a clash of empires. 
If the British had looked back a bit into Zulu history, they would have understood a lot more than they did about the enemy they faced that day. The rise of the Zulu as a military and imperial power in Africa can be traced largely to one remarkable man and the things he did, many of them during the second decade of the 19th century. That man was called Shaka, and his story is pretty interesting. Surprising as it was, the Battle of Isan Lawana did not decide the wider war it was a part of, which historians call the Anglo-Zulu War. The British did eventually prevail, especially after a victory they won at a place called Ulundi, and this part of southern Africa came under British colonial control. That's the end of the story. What concerns us in the second decade is the beginning of that story, which is mostly Shaka's story, and one of the most interesting tales from the 18-teens. So join me now as we travel to the plains and grasslands of Africa at the dawn of the Zulu nation. Good evening. First, an announcement unrelated to the subject matter of tonight's show. I'm working on a brand new podcast. Nothing is happening to Second Decade, it's not going away, but I'm creating an additional podcast, not a history show, but instead a science fiction audio drama. It's called Double Perigee, and it's going to be premiering in late April. It's based on a novel I wrote many years ago. I recently did two articles on my blog, seanmunger.com, explaining the long history of Double Perigee. Anyway, if you like science fiction, story podcasts, they're up and coming these days, or if you just need something different than history, check out Double Perigee. It's going to be a lot of fun. You'll soon be able to find it on iTunes and the usual places where podcasts live. And also remember, I sometimes moonlight on the New Books Network, Environmental Studies channel. I've got a couple of historian interviews coming up for that as well. So basically, I'm very busy this month. And now, related to the subject of the Zulu and the history of Southern Africa in the second decade, I must again make the same plea that I often do when it comes to non-Western history. I don't speak any African languages, and while the words and names in those languages actually aren't so formidable if you just sound them out, I still may mangle the occasional name or term. No disrespect is meant to any speakers of those languages who might be listening. One of the missions of the Second Decade podcast is to present the world as it was in the 18-teens, not just the West or the English-speaking world. Indeed, as you know if you've been listening, previously I've done episodes focusing on Hawaii, China, Japan, Iceland, and Indonesia, and my long list of episode ideas still to come will take us to Latin America, yes I really am planning to do Simon Bolivar, as well as Eastern Europe, the Islamic world, and even Antarctica. Bet you didn't know there was an Antarctica episode in the pipeline, Antarctica was discovered in the second decade. But tonight we get to sub-Saharan Africa for the first time. Telling the history of non-Western countries, especially those without written languages, is a challenge. It's not that there aren't sources available, but the universe of sources about those places that become legible to English-speaking historians is a pretty small one. Still, where you look for those stories, you often find amazing ones, and that's certainly true of Shaka and the Zulu people. Shaka's story begins on a trail through the countryside in what is now KwaZulu-Natal province in South Africa. The social structure and cultural customs of the clans who lived in this area, whose members were, more often than not, closely related to each other, it was quite strict. Although the men could have as many wives as they wanted, the idea of sex outside of marriage was forbidden. So when people, especially young people, wanted to have a little fun, youthful rebellion and all that, 
these societies developed a custom called uku hlobonga, which is basically, well, let's be blunt here, it's basically sex without the money shot, so to speak. One day, there was a fetching young lady from a clan called the Ilangeni. Her name was Nandi, and at some point, this is probably in the year 1786, she got the hots for a young man called Senzangakona. This fellow just happened to be a chieftain of the Zulu people, and he was already married, twice. But he liked Nandi just fine. You can see where this is going. Hello, Uku Hlobonga. Except this particular instance of Uku Hlobonga went a little farther than it was supposed to, and graduated to the full-on horizontal rumba. Nandi went back to her people, Senzangokona went back to his. Then, a couple of months later, the Zulu elders received a messenger from the Ilangeni people. Guess who was Preggers? Guess who put the hat on Senzangokona as the dude who had done the deed? At first, the Zulus refused to believe it, or perhaps more likely, they did believe it, but sought desperately to avoid the public humiliation involved in their young chief admitting an illegitimate kid with another clan. The Zulus replied to the Ilangeni, asking if Nandi really was pregnant, or if she was suffering from the effects of a parasite that African women often blamed for causing problems with their menstrual cycles. The Zulu word for that parasite, a type of beetle, was Ishaka. Well, it clearly wasn't a beetle, but the bundle of joy that Nandi duly delivered was named, somewhat embarrassingly, Shaka. And when he was born, the Ilangeni sent another messenger to the Zulu, saying, a little more forcefully this time, that Senzang Zokona had better take responsibility for this little accident. He did, he married Nandi, adding her to his two existing wives, and brought the baby to live with him. Shaka's childhood was difficult. The Zulu people didn't really like Nandi, and they shunned her son. Nandi and her husband often fought. Finally, Senzangakona kicked her out and sent her and her child back to the Ilangeni, who also hated them. Shaka herded goats. A drought struck the region in 1802. In a place like southern Africa, when resources, particularly cattle, grew short, the people living on the margins were usually the hardest hit. Indeed, the Ilangeni evicted the mother and son again. Shaka, who was a teenager by this time, ultimately went to live among another group, the Matetwa, who were constantly on the lookout for strong young men to serve as warriors. Ultimately, Shaka found his calling in the military. Before we continue with Shaka's story, we should zoom out a bit and set the stage. Africa was a pretty complicated place at the end of the 18th century. Europeans, particularly Dutch and British, had been colonizing the fringes of sub-Saharan Africa since the 17th century. But by the time Shaka was born, probably in 1787, the same year delegates gathered in Philadelphia to draft the U.S. Constitution, and in the same year that the first prison ships left England to found the colony of Australia, Africa was a demographic and cultural tinderbox. By 1807, the year Dupre Alexander, the acting governor of the Cape Colony, sent an expedition to link up with the Portuguese colony on a different part of the coast, White Europeans had colonized much of the coastal areas of southern Africa, but they had rarely traveled very far into the deep interior. African populations, however, were feeling the effects of European colonialism, even if they themselves weren't colonized. Populations were expanding in the interior. Part of the reason why involves our very good friend throughout this podcast, environmental history. In the late 1600s, European colonizers, mainly the Portuguese, introduced corn as a crop into what's now Mozambique, 
and over the next few decades, its cultivation spread rapidly throughout Africa. Corn was a much better and more nutritious crop than the local grains, but you needed more water to grow it. Whenever there's more food, there are more people, hence the population increase. But at the cost of using greater water resources, these growing populations put pressure on the whole environmental system, and each other. Warfare and political turmoil among clans was usually the result. This is the world Shaka was born into. He was 20 in 1807, the year of the Cape Colony expedition. The expedition was important to Shaka's story, and to the rise of the Zulu, even though Shaka himself had nothing to do with it. At some point, a European from this expedition, a Dr. Robert Cowan, found himself stranded in the bush, and he met a native chief exiled from his people, the Matetwa. The chief's name was Dingiswayo. Cowan died, we're not sure how, but Dingiswayo, who'd been guiding him, inherited the gun he carried and the horse he rode. Dingiswayo returned to the Matetwa and took over the clan. Whether he was influenced by European military ideas, or just improvising to create a force that might one day be able to match Europeans militarily, he started reorganizing the Matetwa military and gaining the loyalty and submission of neighboring clans, who wound up bound to the Matetwa politically. The price of submitting to the Matetwa, if you were another clan, was that you had to send a quota of warriors to Dingus Wyo's service. Through this, which was kind of like a militia, the Matetwa grew steadily stronger. By the beginning of the second decade, the Matetwa, using their well-organized military might under Dingus Wyo, were engaged in open warfare with various clans, bringing them forcibly into the orbit of the Matetwa. In about 1810, when Shaka was 23, his regiment was incorporated into Dingus Wyo's military machine. By now, Shaka was a tall and powerful young man, six foot three and very strong. He never married, which was a little unusual. One of my sources declared that it's quote-unquote unquestionable that Shaka was gay. Now, not that it really matters. What did matter was his experimentation with weaponry. Shaka made some improvements on the traditional asagai, the spear that was to the Matetwa of the second decade, what an M16 was to U.S. troops in Vietnam. They're all-purpose, standard-issue weapon. Shaka made it shorter, sharper, and much more brutal. Supposedly, the name of the weapon, Ishwa, is evocative of the sound it makes when you pull it out of the dead body of the person you just stabbed to death with it. How charming. Shaka's new toy got market-tested in pretty short order. At one point, the date is uncertain, maybe around 1815, Dingus Wayo targeted a clan called the Butalezi, with whom Shaka's half-brother was a warrior. Dingus Wayo sent Shaka's unit to the front lines. Armed with their Ishwa, they made mincemeat out of the Butalezi, and even the brother ended up pushing up daisies. Shaka's victory and the quick capitulation of the Butalezi caused Dingus Wayo to start to think big about how he could use Shaka. The victory over the Butalezi brought the Zulu clan into Dingus Wayo's extended federation. Dingus Wayo knew that Shaka was the illegitimate son of the Zulu chief, Senzangzokona, I bet you thought I forgot about him. Now that he was militarily powerful, if Dingus Wayo could somehow get Shaka installed as the chief of the Zulu, that would bind them closer to the Matetwa. And since Shaka's half-brother was dead and Senzangzokona was getting a little long in the tooth, this was a golden opportunity. As it turned out, Senzangakona, and particularly his primary wife, not Shaka's mother, but an earlier wife, Maccabi, would have none of this. They wanted Senzangakona's remaining legitimate son, Sigujana, to take over. 
The stage was set for a good old-fashioned bloody power struggle, and as it turned out, that's exactly what happened. 1816 was the key year in Shaka's rise, and the rise of the Zulus. In that year, Senzanga Kona, the old Zulu chief, died, apparently of natural causes. As he and his wife had wished, the legitimate son, Sigujana, became chief in his place. Dingaswayo and Shaka decided it was time to strike. The Matetwa leader sent his now trusty lieutenant, Shaka, to the Zulu people to take over as Senzanga Kona's successor. Just in case they needed a little convincing, Senzanga Kona helpfully sent a regiment of troops to help Shaka explain how much better it would be if they let him be chief, instead of having their bodies perforated by Ikshwa spears. Sources differ on exactly what happened. In one of my sources, Sigujana met his Waterloo, so to speak, at the hands of Shaka's half-brother, Nguadi, whom Shaka sent ahead to arrange things, and by the time Shaka got to the settlement of the Zulus, they found Sigujana's body floating in a river. In another source, Shaka supposedly stabbed Sigujana to death personally. I guess it doesn't really matter. In 1816, Sigujana was assassinated, and Shaka, the illegitimate kid who had been cast out of the Zulu clan years before, ascended to become their ruler. Ruler with a capital R. Shaka definitely relished throwing his weight around. He began reorganizing the Zulu warriors along the lines of how the Matetwa had been doing things. He started amassing a huge herd of cattle, which was the primary source of economic wealth in this society, and basically establishing himself as the center of power in an increasingly close-knit web of clan and family connections. In short, Shaka began planting the roots that would soon grow into an empire. But to get to the point of dominance he really wanted, the Zulu and the Matetwa were going to have to take on what was the next largest power in the region, the Ndwandwe tribe and their fearsome leader, King Zwide. Shaka is one of the more flamboyant and demanding rulers that we encounter in the second decade, right up there with Boney, Napoleon I mean, with whom Shaka is not infrequently compared. He apparently didn't do anything for himself. Some poor sap in the Zulu nation was stuck with the job of wiping Shaka's butt. I'm totally not making this up, it's right there on page 50 of the Morris book. In the belief systems of these societies, sympathetic magic was a big thing. Sympathetic magic is what many people incorrectly call voodoo. The Zulu were not practitioners of voodoo, at least as we know it in the New World, but there were some chieftains who employed witch doctors who used spells and potions against their enemies. In order to work, supposedly these measures needed physical emanations of the person you were trying to curse, a toenail, for example, or even their crap. To make sure he couldn't be targeted with this kind of witchcraft, Shaka had attendants whose job was to deal with this sort of thing. For example, Shaka's barber had to take the beard clippings, burn them, and scatter them in the river so the enemy wouldn't find them. I don't even think Boney was that obsessive. But while enjoying all this attention, Shaka really was doing some serious work. It didn't hurt that Shaka was a ruthless and aggressive warrior, but what really made his empire was organization and logistics. After taking power in 1816, Shaka embarked on a top-to-bottom reorganization of the Zulu military. He developed new organizational structures, new regiments, new tactics, and in particularly a chain of command structure that functioned very similar to European professional armies. 
He even gave his armies fetching new shields, made from cowhide and color-coordinated, so he could tell which unit was where on the battlefield and what they were doing. Shaka himself became a trendsetter in the fashion world of 19th century South Africa, sporting a golden kilt, leather armbands, and a feathered headdress that only he was allowed to wear. Having just watched the new episode of Queer Eye on Netflix, reading about Shaka's taste in apparel makes me wonder if there's not something to those rumors that he was gay. Shaka was clearly becoming the BMOC, that means big man on campus for those of you too young to remember that term. Anyway, he's becoming the BMOC down there in KwaZulu-Natal. If you wonder whether there was friction between Shaka's Zulu nation and Dingus Wayo's Matetwa people, the answer is there must have been. But in the early years, Shaka was not strong enough to take on the Matetwa. So he was content, for the time being, to have the Zulu remain as a client state of the Matetwa, at least while there were other clans to absorb. Shaka's first big test on the battlefield came against the Butelezi. You may remember that Shaka was instrumental in a battle between the Matetwa, whom he was working for at that time, and the Butelezi. Now, late 1816 or early 1817, there was a rematch, except Shaka was now the quarterback of his own team, instead of playing for Dingishwayos. The idea was to get the chief of the Butelezi, a fellow named Pungashe, to submit to Shaka and become a vassal state of the Zulu. Shaka totally sucker-punched the Butelezi. He sent his guys marching toward them, but with their spiffy new shields held sideways, edge-on, so it seemed like there were fewer of them than there, are, than there really were. He also sent some regiments around the sides of the battlefield. At a certain command, the warriors flipped their shields around front-wise, and the flanking units attacked. The Butelezi were surrounded. Some of their warriors, sensing a rout, fled into a village to hide among the women. Shaka sent his army in to follow them. The Butelezi were almost completely wiped out. But, like Michael Myers at the end of every Halloween movie, Pungashe escaped at the last minute. He fled across country into territory controlled by the powerful Ndwandwe clan. The Ndwandwe chief, Zuide, took him in, listened to his tale of how he was brutally clowned at the hands of the Zulus, and then Zuide had Pungashe executed. What happened next is quite confusing, because it thrusts us even deeper into the complicated politics of southern Africa in the second decade. Shaka and Dingaswayo, who now increasingly conferred with each other about political strategy, decided their next target should be, should be a chief called Matawane, of a people called the Ima Nguaneni. The expedition got underway in June 1817, which in southern Africa is in the winter. After some inconclusive fighting, Matawane surrendered. Shaka was disappointed. Unlike Dingaswayo, who was perfectly fine with a show of force-type victory so long as it resulted in the enemies submitting to him, Shaka preferred to destroy an enemy's forces and leave them incapable of resistance. As it turned out, Zuide issued the coup de grace, deciding that the right time to bump off Matuane and take his clan's lands was right after he tangled with Dingaswayo. Zuide attacked Matuane. This conflict deprived the Ima Nagwanemi of their land and their cattle, leaving them destitute. This was the first in a long, sad chain of wars, displacements, and ethnic conflict that came to be known as the Mafakane, a period of chaos that claimed perhaps two million lives in Africa over the next few decades. Meanwhile, having dispatched Matawane, more or less, Dingaswayo and Shaka finally set their sights on the biggest and strongest rival in the region, that being Zuide himself. The invasion, which got going in 1817, was precipitated by the murder of Dingaswayo's son-in-law by Zuide. 
Dengis Wyo commanded Shaka to bring his warriors and launch a joint expedition to crush Suide. Unfortunately, Shaka and his troops were delayed in reaching the rendezvous point. Dingus Wyo, who was easily distracted by beautiful women, somehow, I'm not clear exactly on how this happened, somehow he wound up in territory controlled by the Ndwandwe, that's Zwide's clan, remember, and he was accompanied only by several women. Zwide captured the Matetwa chief and had him beheaded. Shaka's mentor and chief patron, and partner in crime of late, was dead. Without their chief, the Matetwa were pretty much adrift. They still had a fighting force, but the next question was who it was going to ally with, Shaka and his Zulus, or Zwide and the Ndwandwe, or possibly even a third clan, the Kwabes. Of these three contenders, Shaka's kingdom was the weakest. Now at last, the decisive war was upon them. In April 1818, Zwide moved against Shaka, hoping to destroy him at the outset. Shaka's warriors were outnumbered, but his cleverness was a pretty formidable weapon. Shaka tricked the Ndwande army into splitting itself, following a force that they erroneously thought was the entirety of Shaka's forces. Unbeknownst to them, Shaka hid a reserve force in the depression at the top of a large hill called Gokokli Hill, which gives the battle its name. This battle was one of the fiercest to be fought in the African bush up until that time. Zwide lost maybe 7,500 men, and the Zulus didn't take prisoners, so most of those were killed. Five of Zwide's sons died on the battlefield at Gokokli Hill. The Ndwandwe chief was demoralized by his personal loss and the fact that his vastly larger army couldn't annihilate this pesky upstart who had taken control of the previously insignificant Zulu nation. From this point on, it was a grudge match. Before the final battle could get going, each side had to regroup. Although the Battle of Gokokli Hill had been an impressive victory for the Zulus, they had lost a bunch of their cattle, which as you recall was the chief source of economic wealth in this part of Africa. So Shaka had to regroup in a hurry, find somewhere to get some new cows, and also reconstruct his army for the inevitable final showdown with Suide. Part of Shaka's strategy involved that other tribe, the Kwabe. Sometime between April 1818 and May 1819, a major battle was fought between the Zulus and the Kwabe, though it's unclear to me from the sources as to who attacked who. Shaka may have been seeking to absorb the Kwabe as a means of regenerating his strength, or the Kwabe may even try to knock out the Zulus while they were still weak. In any event, there was another huge battle, this one along the Mlatuze River. The battle again turned to Shaka's advantage. Enough of the Kwabe warriors were left after their defeat to contribute significantly to Shaka's army. One thing Shaka did which was quite smart, especially when he absorbed the forces of his previous rivals, was to promote commanders who had shown their competence in battle even if they weren't Zulu. Shaka's army was at least an equal opportunity employer. The Zulu military machine was kind of like an amoeba, crawling along the landscape and soaking up other clans. This process was actually kind of similar to other national unification projects in the early modern period, though most of them had occurred before the early 19th century. I'm thinking specifically of how the Tokugawa ultimately unified Japan, largely by force, at the end of the 16th and very beginning of the 17th centuries. The comparison between Shaka and Napoleon is a little forced, but thinking of Shaka as sort of an African Tokugawa Ieyasu is probably a bit more spot on. Anyway, in May 1819, Zuide's great invasion got underway. He and his Ndwandwe people fielded an army of 18,000 men, possibly the largest army in existence at that point in time on planet Earth, 
considering the fact that Europe was now at peace following the conclusion of the Napoleonic Wars. Shaka knew Zwide was coming, and like Tsar Alexander in the face of Napoleon's invasion seven years earlier, Shaka left nothing for the enemy to take. He had taken all the Zulu cattle into the forests and left the countryside a wasteland with nothing the invaders could eat or carry off. Just like Napoleon's army in Russia, Zwide found that these tactics ultimately made victory impossible. Zwide might have agreed with the proverb attributed, perhaps not accurately, to the French emperor. An army marches on its stomach. After a week, the Ndwandwe's bellies were empty and they couldn't take it anymore. Zwide ordered a retreat. His exhausted army camped in a forest. Shaka's warriors spent the night skirmishing against the enemy, not full-on attacking, but just enough to keep them on guard, and more importantly, to keep them from getting any sleep. In the morning, Shaka ordered a full-on attack. The battle raged for two days across a series of rivers. When the Battle of the Latuze River was over, Zwide's huge army had been reduced to a pile of corpses scattered over miles, roasting and rotting in the African sun. Shaka wasn't done with the Ndwandwe. He took a fresh army and marched toward Zwide's home village, called a crawl. He approached at night and instructed his soldiers to sing a traditional Ndwandwe victory song as they approached, thus fooling the inhabitants of the village into thinking their king was returning triumphant. As the people turned out to greet Zwide, Shaka sprung the trap. The crawl was burnt to the ground. This victory, though undeniably decisive, wasn't quite complete. Wouldn't you know, just again like Michael Myers in Halloween, Zwide escaped at the last minute. He went to live, rumor had it, with a female chief of another tribe who was supposed to be immortal. As much as I'd like to tell you that this story ends with a final bitter quest for revenge, Shaka hunting down his old adversary and cutting his head off or something, I can't. Zwide seems to have died about 1820, though some sources say 1825. Shaka had proved himself and the Zulu the strongest clan in the entire region. There was still some mopping up to do, of course. There always is after such a large victory. The next year, 1820, Shaka attacked two of the largest remaining clans, the Tembu and the Kunu. He managed to annihilate the Tembu, but the Kunu gave him some trouble. He was forced to regroup for a couple of seasons and then turned on them again in 1822. This time, the Kunu broke as a military force and their people scattered. By now, the great upheaval that was raking southern Africa was in full swing. This was the Mefekane I alluded to earlier, a true sea change in population and culture, resulting in the displacement of millions of people and the deaths of many of them. The great Ndwandwe Zulu War was over, and Shaka was now in complete control of the territories around him. When he came to the Zulu throne in 1816, his people's lands were about 100 square miles in size. By the end of the second decade, the Zulu nation was 11,500 square miles, and Shaka ruled a population of 250,000 people. He had an army of 20,000 warriors. Most of the various clans he conquered and absorbed began to speak Zulu dialects and to think of themselves as Zulus. They were more than a nation. The Zulu was an empire on a continent where most political communities were very small. All this constant warfare had caused a lot of change within the Zulu people themselves. Although Shaka had amassed epically vast herds of cattle, mainly by confiscating cows from his enemies, the Zulu nation didn't really produce much, except warriors. And there was a rule that a Zulu warrior had to be celibate while in the service, which meant that back in the villages there were tens of thousands of women who weren't having kids, 
because the men they would have been married to were in the army. Shaka did eventually allow many of his soldiers to take wives, although they were commanded to be on call to return to the army in case of an emergency. A reserve force, again very much like a modern European army. And a couple of times, Shaka authorized mass events of Uku Hlabonga. But that left a hell of a mess to clean up. But it was clear that the Zulu had become, under Shaka's rule, primarily a militarized society. Perhaps this was inevitable, given the demographic and environmental pressures that were changing southern Africa in the second decade. Shaka himself, now the supreme ruler of this entire area, seems to have let supreme power go to his head. He already lived and ruled pretty ostentatiously. You remember that business about the royal butt-wiper. But after the wars were over in 1822, Shaka became petty, capricious, and tyrannical. Maybe he always was that way. It's hard to get a real read on him as a personality from the sources that emerged from his rise to power. But we do know that in later years he ruled mainly through fear. He would order people around him to be executed for the slightest infraction, like sneezing while he was eating, for instance. In 1824, an Englishman named Henry Francis Finn was the first European to make contact with Shaka, and in a diary of his visit, he recorded Shaka ordering numerous executions for extremely petty things. Possibly it was just to impress the Europeans with his absolute power, but it does seem that Shaka killed a lot of people. It got to be so bad that a team of executioners traveled with him everywhere he went. Tales of Shaka's cruelty and capriciousness, recorded mostly by Finn and other Europeans who came into contact with him, figured heavily in Western historiography of Shaka and the rise of the Zulu until well into the 20th century. Given how European colonizers typically viewed the people they colonized, this isn't surprising. The story of the rest of Shaka's reign doesn't concern us much, as it occurs outside the second decade, though of course I should say something about it. Western sources concerned themselves a lot with Shaka's contact with Europeans, which began in 1824. As was probably inevitable, one of the first things that most Europeans who encountered Shaka and the Zulu did was to try to get him to sign papers granting them huge pieces of his territory. Shaka did this happily, but the papers didn't mean anything. The Zulu did not share the Europeans' concept of property, and in any event, in Zulu legal tradition, a contract had no validity after the lifetime of the person who signed it. As you may have surmised from the beginning of this episode, the British didn't actually set their sights on possessing Zulu territory until the 1870s, after technological interventions like steamboats, rifles, and particularly medicines made it feasible for Europeans to travel into the interior of Africa, where previously malaria kept them confined mainly to the coasts. Anyway, I'm jumping ahead. Shaka seems to have gone quite nuts in 1827 when his mother, Nandi, finally died. Shaka commanded the Zulu people to mourn his mother with him, but more than that, he wanted everybody to know what it felt like to lose your mother. He went crazy, killing people all over the place, including pregnant women, and ordering his people not to plant crops or to harvest milk from their cows. Nandi was supposedly buried together with ten handmaidens who were buried alive, their arms and legs broken so they couldn't resist. There's no way to verify if all these stories are true, but there are reports from one of the Europeans, trekking through the interior, that he came across the charred remnants of Zulu villages filled with dead women and children. Shaka had plenty of enemies by this time. Two of his half-brothers seemed to have been plotting against him for quite a while. Given his total reign of terror and all the people he killed, this shouldn't be surprising. On September 22, 1828, 
during a diplomatic visit from another tribe, the two brothers, plus another conspirator, created a diversion and then used Shaka as a human pincushion for their spears. Shaka's last words were, Children of my father, what is wrong? He was 41 years old. He had no dynasty to succeed him. Though he had an extensive harem, Shaka never married. He referred to the women in his harem as his sisters, not his wives. Supposedly the reason he never married and had no kids was that he didn't want any sons plotting against him later in life. If Shaka was gay, as is rumored, this might have been a bluff. Who knows? Shaka's collateral descendants through the various half-brothers formed an unbroken line of kings through much of the rest of the century, ending in Quechuao, who was on the Zulu throne at the time of the British invasion in 1879, and who is remembered as the last king of the independent Zulu nation. After the British loss at the Battle of Isan Lawana in January 1879, the Redcoats, who didn't take kindly to being defeated by indigenous peoples, regrouped, besieged the Sulu capital at Ulundi, and ultimately captured Quechuao. A great deal of skullduggery involving the British and various Zulu kings and sub-kings played out through the colonial period. The region known as Zululand was formally annexed by the British in 1887, exactly a century after the birth of Shaka. But for much of the 19th century, the Zulu Empire was one of the largest and most cohesive nations on the continent of Africa. Shaka's reign was violent and tumultuous, but the backdrop of sub-Saharan Africa in the 18-teens was one of catastrophic and often tragic change, caused by many factors, of which the coming of Europeans was just one. Shaka and his memory continues to resonate through African culture. In some quarters, he's a folk hero just as Napoleon is in France despite his obvious excesses, and Shaka remains as important in African identity and culture as in history. There's a theme park called Ushaka Marine World in Durban, South Africa, and in fact Durban's airport is named after Shaka, King Shaka International Airport, which has been named the best airport in Africa numerous times. Shaka himself, however, truly deserves to be remembered as one of the founders of powerful nations. And the heyday of his reign was in the second decade, another notch on the club of this very important period in the history of the world. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor. Leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it'll greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Also check out the other great history podcasts on the Recorded History Network. Podcasts like The Human Circus, Art History Babes, Dead Ideas, The Age of Napoleon, Explorers, History in Hindsight, and Stuff What You Tell Me. And remember, I have an audio drama podcast, Science Fiction, called Double Perigee, which is coming out soon. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include The Washing of the Spears by Donald R. Morris, published by Simon & Schuster, 1965. Music Credits Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Special thanks to Chakwudi Emmanuel Odili, who contributed the voiceover at the beginning of this episode. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.
bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.